This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for real life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, come and join us at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, so I drew the short straw. (laughs) Actually, I'm beginning to think maybe they're all short straws on this retreat. And I was just thinking how, um, I don't know about in other people's groups, but in our group it's been quite, um, you know, this thing about reflecting on the precious human life has been quite difficult and quite challenging. And then in our team meeting yesterday when we were talking about this, um, we were sort of saying, oh, God, you know, that was supposed to be the... uh, (laughs) That was supposed to be the easy bit. That was supposed to be, like, the uplifting bit at the beginning. So... Yeah, so maybe it's all maybe it's all quite challenging in different ways. Uh, but what I'm going to talk about is death and impermanence. Many things threaten life, which is even more ephemeral than a bubble of water full of air. How amazing is the opportunity to exhale after inhaling and to awake from sleep. So this is Nagarjuna. And I really like that, um, particularly that last line. How amazing is the opportunity to exhale after inhaling uh, and to awake from sleep. And how much we take it for granted that with each breath there'll be another breath and each time we go to sleep we'll wake up again. So because I've been thinking about this talk and Dharmadina's been talking about um, the sort of precious human life, reflections on the precious human life, I think for me, I've just seen how closely they're connected and how much they go very much hand in hand. Um, They only sort of make sense together, in a way. That's what I've been thinking. And um, I was thinking that, in a way, it's like we only really... Well, I think this is my experience. We only really experience life as being precious um, when we have a sense of it being quite fragile, quite sort of frail. And we only... um, and, and by having that sense of it being quite fragile, we sort of realise the preciousness of it. So they're very much, um, they very much go hand in hand. And in a way, I suppose what we're trying to do is have um, like a heightened sense of both of those things. That, so the kind of fragility of life and the preciousness of life, as opposed to having a kind of dull sense of both of those things. So sometimes we can kind of have that. I know for me that dull sense is like, you know, well, life's not so great anyway. And, you know, so what if everybody dies? You know, so what if I die? Kind of thing. There's this kind of dull, a dull sense of both. And what we're looking for is like a heightened sense of both. So I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about these, these reflections in this, in this context as sort of a reflection on death in the context of these mind-turning reflections. I've realised is quite a particular reflection on death. It's not just a general kind of musing on death. It's thinking about death in a certain way for certain reasons. So I'm going to talk a bit about that kind of reflection on death. And then I'm also going to talk a bit about my own experience since my dad died. So my dad died at Christmas this year, very unexpectedly. So I've just thought quite a lot about death um, for the last nine months. So I'm going to bring in just some of those things that I've been thinking about. But first of all, I'm going to talk a bit about dew. 
uh, dewdrops. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, a kind of image of impermanence from the Zen tradition and from um, Zen poetry. So I'll start with a little poem. The Lakshanas can cut like blades sometimes, while the dewdrop world is the dewdrop world. But yet, but yet. So the Lakshanas can cut like blades sometimes, while the dewdrop world is the dewdrop world. But yet, but yet. And this is a poem by somebody called Isa, who lived in the 18th century. Japanese poet and he had just had this really difficult life where his mum died when he was very young and then he had um, a stepmother who sort of made his life hell um, so he left home um, as soon as he could and eventually he married when he was about 50 and he had um, four children and they all died in infancy and then his wife died uh, in childbirth and then his house burnt down and then eventually he married, he remarried when he, was, when he was quite old. And he finally had a daughter who lived, but she wasn't born till after his death. So he died when he was 65. So it's a little kind of uh, life story of Issa. And if you read his poems, he, he just writes the most beautiful, simple, sad poetry. And he has this quality of um, empathy, so he often writes about things like flies. You know, he'll write about a fly with this huge amount of kind of empathy that he's really, like, put himself in the position, you know, in the fly's shoes, so to speak. They don't really have shoes, do they? But, um, but it's just these beautiful sort of simple poetry filled with empathy. This world of dew is nothing but a world of dew, and yet, and yet... So I'll just come back to that in a minute, this, this world of dew. I was also reading a book about Dogen's poetry, and uh, he's the same in that he uses this image of dew and dewdrops. And he lived in the 13th century and is on our refuge tree, one of the teachers on our refuge tree. His mother and father both died when he was very young, and he had quite a strong, I suppose, insight, really, um, as a very young boy into the whole of life being very fragile, this kind of loss and grief. And he decided to become a monk when he was about 14. And he writes, Dewdrops on a blade of grass, having so little time before the sun rises, let not the autumn wind blow so quickly on the field. So if you read, if you read this uh, Zen poetry, Japanese poetry, and if you read about it, you realise there's all these kind of themes which are quite definite, they mean definite things, so, and they're reoccurring. So like one is the seasons, you, know, you always get the seasons, uh, poetry about the seasons, and each season uh, is a symbol for something else. And it's interesting because we're in the season of death, of death and impermanence, being autumn. And um, also, apparently, in uh, this poetry... Dew, whenever dew appears as a sort of, as an image, uh, it also means autumn, interestingly. So it's like this kind of fleetingness, it's like a sort of um, something disappearing in the dew. So you have this image of dew 
being an image of impermanence, really, an, Im an image of sort of transience of things. And there's a little saying or something that goes, which will last longer, the master or his dwelling? And it's said to be like asking, which will last longer, the, the dew on the morning glory or the morning glory itself? We've got this, Chris has planted this uh, morning glory. So I've just been, I keep thinking about it because these flowers come out and then they, they, only, they don't last a day, do they? They last about half a day. So in a way, when we ask the question, which lasts longer, the dew or the morning glory? It's like, well, um, you know, maybe the dew will fade before the flower does or maybe the flower will fade before the dew does. But either way, by evening time, they'll both be gone. You know, so it's that sort of image. And then you also have another image to do with dew, which is um, dew frost. So I've just come across this, actually, this, this idea of dew frost. And if you go out very early in the morning, uh, on a morning, I don't know what weather conditions cause this, but, you know, that, like sometimes there's just lots of dew, isn't there? It's very kind of wet. So you get those kind of misty mornings. And if you go up by the reservoir where there's, uh, I mean, I particularly notice it here, but by the reservoir there's these um, fences or these kind of, yeah, kind of like open sort of fence. And it's full of cobwebs, you know, which are presumably there, well, they're obviously there all the time, but you don't normally see them. But because they're covered in dew, in this dew frost, I suppose it's the same as a uh, sort of frost, you can see all these kind of forms uh, out in nature that you don't normally, uh, you don't normally see. So again, this dew frost is used as a sort of symbol of things being insubstantial. So it's as if we need to reflect that we are as insubstantial as that kind of dew frost, those kind of forms made of, made of dew, made of nothing, you know, that will fade as the sun comes out. And then the image of dew drops. So in, the, um, in this poetry, when uh, he talks about the dew drop world, well, the image of dew drops is an image for tears, so it brings in the kind of whole emotional, the emotions that go with these reflections on impermanence and insubstantiality. That, that kind of reflection has got a certain kind of flavour, and the flavour is sadness. And so these, these dewdrops, they represent tears. So it's a kind of a sort of painfulness. And I think, you know, it's quite interesting because it's the three Lakshanas. So dew is impermanence, the dew frost is insubstantiality, and the dew drops is, is sort of painfulness, yeah, suffering, sadness. So then you also see um, in this kind of poetry, like if you're familiar with the poetry of Riken, is that there's quite a strong connection between sadness and awakening. So, so sadness is, is a definite kind of... Uh, flavour to a lot of this, this poetry and actually that feeling, that sad feeling is sabby so those of you that know that I talk about wabby sabby uh, the sabby part of wabby sabby is that, is that sort of sadness uh, and it's not an unpleasant it's not at all unpleasant it's just um, yeah, it's just a kind of sadness uh, the kind of um, fleetingness of life but there's a connection between that and insight. 
So in, in, in terms of Zen poetry, there's quite a strong connection between that, that feeling of sadness and insight. So I was struck by Don Medina talking about this thing, Keith Diamond, whoever he is, saying this thing about uh, no, nothing beats real experience. Yeah? So it's all very well to um, reflect on things or even to, you know, sit in bed reading this lovely sad Zen poetry. But it's quite different to um, actually experiencing death or loss and the sadness that comes with that. And there's quite a strong connection, I think, between, well, real experience and reflection, because what we reflect on affects then how we experience the world. And how we experience the world will be sort of reflected in our reflecting, if you see what I mean. They kind of, they they feed into each other. So if it was the case that we were never to fade away, that we were never to die, things would lose their power to move us. So it is only that we're moved by the dew or the morning glories because they fade away and because we too are going to fade away. That's why we're moved by it. And because we reflect on those things, because we take those things in, we also have to take in more that we will fade away. You see what I mean? So they kind of they feed into each other, our reflections and our experience. And I was thinking that it's a bit like death seems to be the koan, in a sense, the kind of ultimate koan. And I think what particularly moves me about this Issa poem, about the the Lakshana's cut-like blade sometimes, so it's like the painfulness of existence, and yet he talks about it being this dewdrop world. So this world of dew, this world of illusion, that is also very, really painful. Well, in a way, for me, that's a, that's a koan. You know, how is it that this world is, is just an illusion and yet it's so real in terms of the painfulness of it? And there's a little story, which I've told a few times, about Marpa. So Marpa, his son dies and uh, he's absolutely filled with grief um, at the loss of his son. And his disciples are quite shocked that he's grieving so much. And they say, they say, you know, how come you're, you're grieving so much? Because you've taught us that everything is an illusion. How come you're grieving so much at the death of your son? And he says, yes, everything is an illusion. And the most painful illusion of all is the death of one's child. So it's this, so it's this kind of, this koan that Sangsara, I suppose, is a painful illusion. <laughs> And because it is a koan, it keeps us reflecting on it. It's very hard, if you have some experience of death, to not reflect on it. It's a really big, uh, it provokes really big questions, doesn't it? Uh, It's the time when you ask yourself really big questions. And um, for that reason, it does sort of take us deeper, I think. And the Buddha says, Of all footprints, those of the elephant are the broadest and deepest. Of all meditations... That on impermanence is the strongest and most beneficial. Okay, so that's a little bit about the dewdrop world. And so coming on to these mind-turning reflection on death and impermanence. So what I'm going to talk about is uh, these three things, that death is certain 
that the time of death is uncertain and that at the time of death only the Dharma is of benefit. So that's the kind of framework of this, this reflection. So first of all, death is certain. So I will die and you will die and everybody dies. Even the Buddha died. So in a way I kind of think this is quite hard to reflect on because well, we just think, well, yeah, of course I know I'll die. End of reflection sort of thing. Um, so what does it really mean to kind of know that we'll die? And uh, one of the things that I was thinking about is that I, I think that I will die but I realise that I think that when I die, it won't be me that dies. It will be this old lady called Vajradarshini, yeah, who, who I've somehow kind of distanced myself from. Do you see what I mean? So I think, it's the, I think we do think we will die, but because that person that's going to die, we've kind of projected them a bit into the future, we kind of disassociate with that person that's going to die. It's not really us, it's like... You know, this old lady, Patradoshi. So that's one thing to just to kind of think about, that, you know, when, when you die, it will be you, yeah, with all your, you know, actually you, with your clothes and your things and your habits and so on. It won't be that different. How, however you are then, when you do die, you won't be that different from how you are now. Yeah? So you can't really disassociate from it. So then I was um, doing this thing where I was just imagining taking myself out of my world. Well, imagining what if I did die? I was thinking about it on this retreat, actually. Okay, what if I did die? What if I do die before the end of this talk? What will, you know, what will happen? And I was thinking, well, there would be a lot of grief. I'm fairly sure there'd be quite a lot of grief um, if I died. And uh, when I die, if I died during this talk. (laughs) And there would probably be quite a big funeral, and I think people would kind of do me proud in a certain way. And then everybody would start kind of sorting out my stuff, and, like, somebody would have my computer. That was one of the first things I thought. And um, there'd be a few things in my room that people wanted to have, but most of it nobody would want, really, because it would just be rubbish, really. And they'd, they'd kind of clear off all my files and everything off the computer. That would all go. Somebody else would... There'd be an ad going to Shabda saying, you know, in the unfortunate event of Vajradoshi's death, we are now looking for somebody to <laughs> replace her. And then people would start getting ex- quite excited about this new person that's applied for my job, you know. And somebody would say, oh, maybe, you know, maybe you could be chairman now that Vajradoshi's dead. <laughs> uh, and so all my responsibilities would be taken over by somebody else. And for a while, people would be quite sad. And they'd kind of sit around the table in the in the uh, <laughs> in the community, and they'd say, "Oh, can you remember that suet pudding that Fadidash used to make?" <laughs> Things like that. I might have a few tears, whatever. But then, you know, after quite a short amount of time, it would be like there would be hours go by where nobody had even thought about me. Yeah, and, and then there'd be like days go by, you know, and I might be mentioned like every now and again, you know, every week or two or something. But mostly people would just be carrying on with their lives. And it's quite a reflection, really, to think that we're not that significant, are we? It's quite hard to take that in. And it doesn't mean that we're not loved. It just means that even even to the people that really love us, we're not that significant. We're not unsignificant, but we're not 
that significant. We're not the centre of their world in the same way that we are the centre of our world. Hard to believe. (laughs) (laughs) But also, it's quite a nice thought in a way, because it's like you sort of realise that everything would go on without you. So there's a certain amount of freedom in there. There's a certain amount of, yeah, just knowing that actually you've got a choice what you do. You know, I've got a choice whether I'm here or not, because if I died, I would just be replaced. So it's not like Tiranaloka would kind of, you know, shut down and uh, things like that. So there's a kind of a sort of freedom in realising that we're not that significant, that life goes on without us. And then there's the whole area of how permanent and how substantial we kind of see things or experience things to be. And we know that everything is impermanent, but we think that some things are more permanent than others. And we think that we are quite high on the scale of permanence and probably our (coughs) our families and close friends are quite high on the scale of permanence. And then other things like the dewdrops and so on, we perhaps know that they're they're impermanent. But a few days ago, I just got a pen out of my thing to um, write something and I got this pen out, which is a really horrible pen, actually. (laughs) But... um, and I just thought to myself, I think my dad gave me this pen. And I just have a memory of it being in the conservatory where my, my parents lived. And, I mean, he didn't give it to me as like a present or anything, but he just sort of said, I think I took it, or he said, oh, take that pen or whatever. And I was just like, that is absolutely mad, you know, that this like horrible, disposable pen is still here. You see what I mean? And my dad isn't, you know, and my dad seemed so much... I wouldn't have been able to... If you told me that at the time, it would be so hard to believe that my dad was less substantial in a way or less permanent than this pen. This pen is supposed to be disposable. Do you see what I mean? It's like... It's things like that that suddenly... um, You just think, that's not right. You know, that's not right that that pen is still here. So it's just trying to kind of, we're so kind of geared to not take in um, our own impermanence, I suppose, our own sort of fragility. And I was thinking that I was on this aeroplane once and um, I don't know, I suppose, I I don't know if other people like this, I always think that I might die when I go on an aeroplane. I'm not particularly scared of flying, but it's just that you're completely out of control and you just think if something happened... That would be it, sort of thing. So I'm always a bit like, I always like to sit next to somebody that I wouldn't mind dying sitting next to. I always have that kind of thought, you know, like, oh, no, I don't think I want to die sitting next to this person. Um, And and anyway, I was on this aeroplane and I just thought to myself, oh, God, you know, it's like, what would happen if if suddenly we realised that we were going to die, sort of thing? And And I just had this kind of image of, like, everybody would be running up and down the aisle, you know, hysterical probably, screaming, you know, we're all going to die, we're all going to die. And then I thought, oh, isn't it funny that we're not doing that already? (laughs) You know, isn't it funny that we're not running up and down the aisle of life just shouting, oh, my God, we're all going to die? Because it's only a matter of a slightly different time scale, isn't it? You know, but we don't sort of realise. I think when we read these, we listen to the news and we hear about kind of these disasters... I mean, actually, we are in a disaster. You know, Sangsara is a disaster, and none of us are going to get out of it, survive it, I mean, in, in that sense, uh, within Sangsara. So, um, 
yeah. Not that I'm suggesting we all get hysterical, but... So I've got some little quotes here that um, I got from Dharmadina, so this is one of them. Long Chen Rabjam uh, says, With your heart, contemplate the certainty that all your relations and all your wealth will be as nothing, like a deserted city. Everything is impermanent, so be detached. With your heart, contemplate the inevitability of death. When it comes, your home and possessions, your friends and famous colleagues will not accompany you. Realise absolute truth. So the next of these reflections is um, that the time of death is uncertain. So death is certain, but the time of death is uncertain. I was reading some poetry the other night and I came across this poem, which I'm not going to read, but the idea of the poem was that one of these days is the anniversary of our death already. Yeah? So it just made me think, oh, yeah, what, what day is the anniversary of my death? Yeah? Uh, is it July 23rd? Yeah? Like, there's a day. Each year we go round the calendar and, the, and we go past the day. And that day is the anniversary of our death in time. And it's just things like that, I think, that help to make it feel a bit more real. But that's really going to happen. And um, another thing, uh, these are just various kind of musings, really, but another thing that I've been thinking about recently is uh, near misses and um, how difficult it is to really experience a near miss as a near miss. Yeah? So I spilt my coffee in my bed the other morning and I have this little kind of shelf thing by my bed and it's not very it's not really big enough for all the things I tend to put on there. Anyway, you know, it's like first thing in the morning, you're a little bit sort of sleepy. And what I realise is that I've often nearly spilt my coffee. Yeah? So, you know, you know, you kind of put your coffee down and then it goes a bit like that and you just kind of catch it in time. And that's like a near miss. And then sometimes, very occasionally, you don't catch it in time. And it's all spilt in your bed, you know. And then you've got to, like, go and make more coffee. You've got to take your duvet off. You've got to do all these things. And what I was thinking of is, in terms of the results of that, there's such a big difference between spilling your coffee and not spilling your coffee. You know, in terms of the consequences, there's such a big difference. And in terms of the action, there's such a tiny difference as to whether you catch that coffee or not, Yeah. And I don't know why, but this just keeps... uh, Every time I have something of a near miss with something, I just think, oh, it's really interesting, because it's like, if it wasn't what we call a near miss, if it was a sort of miss, and uh, that thing had happened, the consequences would then be completely different. A whole sort of chain of something would be set up. And I was thinking how our life is probably like that, that we probably have loads of near misses, but we don't experience them necessarily as near misses because we're still here. Yeah? Nothing's happened to us. Yeah, we haven't spilt the coffee, in a sense. Yet there's perhaps just a very tiny thread, in a sense, that we're kind of, we've managed to hang on to our lives. So any moment could be our last moment. And all the plans that we make are provisional or provisional plans. And I was thinking about how my my nanny, 
when I when she was still alive. I used to go and see her, and she she lived to be quite into her eighties. And she always used to say, you know, if I, I'd say I'll see you on Sunday or something, she'd say yes, God willing, you know. And I noticed that this happened uh, as she got older more. And we'd talk about my brother's wedding, and she'd say, well, if I'm here then, yeah. And um, yeah, I suppose it's it's quite a good thing to do. And uh, another reading that I've got here, which I'll read, which is quite long, but it's very good. It's um, Patrol Rinpoche. And it's about this as a practice, in a sense, this, well, if I'm here then, yeah, just reflecting that we might not be here, that anything we plan to do uh, is provisional. So he says, meditate single-mindedly on death, all the time and in every circumstance, while standing up, sitting or lying down. Tell yourself... This is my last act in this world, and meditate upon it with utter conviction. On your way to wherever you might be going, say to yourself, maybe I will die there. There is no certainty I will ever come back. Wherever you are, you should wonder if this might be where you will die. At night when you lie down, ask yourself whether you might die in bed during the night or whether you can be sure that you are going to get up in the morning. When you rise, ask yourself whether you might die sometime during the day and reflect that there is no certainty at all that you will be going to bed in the evening. Meditate only on death, earnestly earnestly and from the core of your being. Meditate like the Kadampa Geshes of old, who were always thinking about death at every moment. At night they would turn their bowls upside down, which is only done when a person died and thinking how the next day there might be no need to light a fire because they'd died, they would never cover the embers for the night. So it's quite something, isn't it, to to live in a way that you don't keep your fire in overnight because you really think you might die in the night. And I was thinking about how much we... Well, we do this kind of forward planning thing, don't we? So I can tell you what I'm doing every day of 2006, (laughs) pretty much. Um, God willing, yeah, (laughs) if I get to be there. But we don't know. We don't know that we're going to be doing those things. It is all um, provisional. And we have this idea that there is going to be some time later when we die or there is going to be some time later when our parents die, when other people die, but not yet. I remember this this thing of not yet. I think that's quite interesting as well because um, it's almost like... I think I have this quite strongly. It's almost like... I sort of try to be prepared for things that I know I have to face, if you know what I mean. But there is this, like, but not yet. Yeah, I'm willing to go there, I'm willing to, to do whatever it is, but not yet, you know, that, that sort of not yet. And I know when my dad died, I think the thing that I was most shocked by, and I just couldn't believe it, was that I was 38, I was 37. And I'd so thought somewhere, somewhere I'd kind of thought about my parents dying. I'd thought about how, what that might feel like, how I might handle it. But I just always thought that I would be in my 50s. I just somewhere, unconsciously, obviously, but somewhere I'd got it so strongly that, that, that when I was in my 50s, you know, and it was, so, it was so sort of like, but I'm 37. This is not right, you know, this pen and, the, you know, me only being 37. It's sort of like we're prepared for something, but I think we've got it. You know, we've got a certain idea of how that's going to happen. We've got a certain idea of how and when that's going to happen. And actually, we just don't know how and when that's going to happen.
Okay, so um, the third of the reflections is at the time of death, only the Dharma is of benefit. All you take with you is the core of your being. So you take nothing with you. And I think, again, with my dad, I was just kind of shocked by that, really, that he took nothing with him. Not his watch, not his vest. He always wore a vest, but he didn't take his vest. You know, he took nothing. He took nothing with him. Uh, You leave everything behind and you go completely alone. Nobody can go with you. You go completely alone. And you go... In a sense, mostly, I think we go completely unprepared. So it's not even like going on retreat or going on holiday where, you know, you will perhaps kind of finish things off and do your washing up before you leave your house and do your laundry. And for most of us, probably, there won't be time to finish anything off. We'll just go mid, mid-life. Yeah? When I was at my parents' house right after my dad died, I was just really... You know, like he's a gardener and, and there's the greenhouse. He's got his sweet peas ready to go in. He's got, he's got all these things that are half done. And that, that just seems so strange, you know, that he'd just kind of, um, yeah, just so unbelievable that you could just like be gone. And, and yet there's all these kind of unfinished things. There's all your things that you thought you were going to carry on with. Yeah, all your plans, I suppose. So we don't have that chance to finish anything off. And nothing, nothing will be of any use to us. Nobody will be of any use to us. All that will be of any use to us is how much of the Dharma we've integrated uh, and really integrated, I suppose, into the kind of core of our being. So how much love we have, how much fearlessness we have, uh, how much insight we have uh, is all that will be of any use to us. It's very difficult to know, isn't it, how much of any of those things we do have, in a sense. And I know you often hear about people who have practised the Dharma to varying extents. You hear about how they die and how they seem to die quite well, in a way. They seem to be able to die with quite a lot of fearlessness. You know, I don't know how I would be if I was kind of facing my own death. Uh, at all and I imagined that I would be really really frightened but another of the things that I've thought a lot about since my dad died was that that I was with him when he died and although I was really really upset I had no fear and that was quite a shock to me because I would have thought I would have been really frightened and I just had no fear at all and that sort of changed my idea a bit about my own death it's given me a bit more confidence I suppose in my own death in a sense that, yeah, maybe I have developed some level of fearlessness. And maybe we all have it, you know, whether we practice or not, maybe it's like there is a sort of level of fearlessness in the face of, of death. Maybe it's not as we would expect it to be. So in a way, we can't kind of underestimate the effects of our practice and think, well, actually, you know, all those days when I didn't meditate and and all that and all my lack of metta and so on. It's like we can underestimate our practice, I think. And actually, we might have a lot more as a sort of resource there when we actually really need it than we think we have. So Togmi Zangpo says, We will be parted from close friends of close acquaintance. Our wealth and possessions obtained with great effort will be left behind. The guest house of our body must be left by its guest, the mind. 
Casting away thoughts concerned with this life only is a practice of the Bodhisattvas. So casting away thoughts concerned with this life only is a practice of the Bodhisattvas. I'll come back a bit to that. So these reflections that death is certain, that the time of death is uncertain, and at the time of death only the Dharma is of benefit, they lead to, well, kind of decisions, I suppose. They, they, they galvanise us. So the idea is that they motivate us and they lead to certain qualities. So when we reflect that death is certain, that leads us to think, I must practice, yeah? which is a kind of feeling of conviction. We have a strong sense of conviction. So when push comes to shove, we do really realise that we do believe in the Dharma. And often we're not put in that kind of position, are we? So it sort of makes you think how kind of doubt is a bit of a luxury, really. That we're often in a position where we can afford to doubt, in a sense. We can afford to, um, yeah, I don't know, whatever, yeah. But when, when push comes to shove, actually, we realise the degree to which we do have conviction in the Dharma. And I think that knowing we will die, the more we can take this in, the more our faith will be strengthened. Because in knowing that we will die, we therefore know that we need a refuge. And I think we don't always know that we need a refuge. Yeah? When we have the need of a refuge, what happens is that there is a refuge there. We have an experience of the three refuges in some form or other, which would be different for, for each of us. But we have some strong experience of those refuges because we really experience ourselves as in need of a refuge. Whereas often I don't think we experience that, that strongly enough, our, our own need for a refuge. And I did feel when my dad died that I had been kind of practicing for that moment in a funny sort of way, in a way that I hadn't really, um, hadn't quite put two and two together like that. But I had been kind of practicing a bit for that moment. I had reflected on death. And it was quite interesting to think about what I had that other people didn't have, because it wasn't very much. I didn't feel like I had very much that other people didn't have. So... Like, say, my brother, my mum, my sister-in-law, other people that were around. In a way, I didn't feel like I had more courage, more love. I, di I didn't feel... You know, I felt like that was drawn out of all of us, in a sense. But I felt like what I did have was some kind of framework whereby I could sort of make sense. I mean, not in a very sensible way, but I could make sense of what was happening. It's like I had some way of understanding what was happening with my dad dying, which in a way they didn't have. Um, so that was quite interesting just to kind of notice, well, what I had. Uh, it wasn't that much, but it was quite significant. It really was the difference, I think, in being able to take in his death. So if we, if we develop this kind of certainty that we are going to die, one of the things it does is it liberates us from unfocused practice. So it focuses the mind. When we're quite close to death, whether it's the prospect of our own death or whether it's the death of somebody else, I think what happens is, is it brings a certain clarity. Suddenly you are perfectly clear about what is important and what isn't important. And you just want to do what is important. So it brings this kind of focus, this clarity. 
So then when we reflect that the time of death is uncertain, that leads us to think, I must practice now. So it gives us this sense of urgency. So I must practice and I must practice now. So there's not necessarily tomorrow. So we've done all this kind of forward planning, but we're not necessarily going to be here to kind of see out those plans. And it's worth thinking about what does this mean in terms of being in the moment? I think it's something that we can kind of get the wrong end of the stick with this kind of being in the moment business. And think that being in the moment means that we don't make any plans for the future. Whereas it doesn't mean that. It just means that we know that all plans are provisional. Yeah? And we're in the moment with our forward planning, knowing that all that forward planning is provisional, yet we still plan. So this sense of urgency is going to make us ask ourselves, how do we spend our time and how do we want to spend our time? So one of the things I've done recently is um, I've given up watching uh, rubbish films. I've just suddenly got this sense that life is too short to watch films that aren't really, really good. So I still watch quite a lot of films, but I only watch films that are really good. And I think that's quite interesting because I used to be a bit like there was a sort of middle ground. I don't think I've ever watched awful films, but there was a kind of middle ground of these kind of films that would be quite kind of entertaining Really, there would be a way to sort of kill an evening, so to speak, kill a couple of hours, veg out. And so they were in the kind of middle ground, and sometimes I'd just quite fancy a movie like that, actually. And uh, I think recently I've just like, no, I only really want to watch good films. And it's this idea of, like, killing time, isn't it? You know, people talk about killing time. I mean, other people might not experience this with such the same amount of horror, but those, those word puzzles... You know those word puzzles that you do where you... No, not, not Sudoku. Not, no, no, that's a different, maybe. Um, uh, <laughs> those word puzzles where you have to find the words and then you circle them. I have this sort of, like, when I see somebody doing them, I just have this kind of, like, it fills me with a sort of horror. Because it's like, they're not even challenging, are they? They're just, they're literally, like, how to lose half an hour sort of thing so this idea of just kind of losing time like that so what are we doing with our time and there's this uh, this little poem that i love it often comes into my mind and i can't think who it's by actually but it says and the days are not long enough and the nights are not long enough and life slips by like a field mouse not even shaking the grass so it's like i love this image of life being this like field mouse you know how they kind of run through the grass and in so, so fast and they don't even the grass doesn't even move and that that's life is going that fast. So just to have this feeling that the days are not long enough and the nights are not long enough. Yet it also brings up the question, well, what does it mean to make the most of our lives? So life is certainly too short to waste it by being busy all the time. So making the most of our lives and the days not being long enough and the nights not being long enough isn't about how much we can kind of cram into our precious opportunity um, of life. So we develop this sense of urgency and it's a combination. This urgency, I think, is a combination of energy being freed up. So there's that sort of aspect to urgency, but there's also a really sort of disciplined, focused, we know what we want to do with our time. Even if we sometimes want to do nothing, 
we, we know that quite clearly. That's what we want to do with our time. So then, at the time of death, only the Dharma is of benefit. So this leads us to, I must practice purely. And I wasn't sure what this meant, I must practice purely. So I thought about it a bit, and um, I thought, well, in a way, maybe what it means is I must practice with insight in mind. So I must practice with that big perspective, not just in order to be a bit happier, in order to cope a little bit better with samsara, in order to get on with people a bit better. And so what does it mean to practice purely? I think it probably means to practice with insight in mind. So to practice in a way that changes us fundamentally in our deepest self, because that deeper self is all we've got at the point of death, so that needs to be changed. It's not that we're trying to fix samsara. So, that, so I think that's a really easy mistake to make, is that going for refuge in Buddhism is about being better at life, being better at samsara. And it's not, because samsara is, is samsara. And the only solution is to get out of it, you know, to step outside of it, to see through it, whatever image we like to use. And one of the things that we need to do is we need to rely on something other than the material plane. So again, this has um, been in my mind quite a lot with my dad's death, is how much I rely on the material plane. And I think this is a really hard one for me because I am so... I'm quite outer. I don't, I don't have a very strong kind of inner life. or Well, I think I do in a certain way, but I want to make things. I want things to be manifest if you see what I mean. So, like, my practice has always been to work. Yeah, I like to make shrines, I like to make talks. It's like to kind of manifest something. And just this idea of actually relying on something that is non-material. So where we go in our meditation, (coughs) where we sometimes go in our meditation, (coughs) that there is a sort of, there's another kind of plane to existence, however we experience it. And that's where we've got to put our reliance. That's what we've got to start relying on more than the material plane. Not that they're kind of separate, but... Yeah, I was just thinking that I really don't think I would be very good at being dead. I was thinking this yesterday. I had a sort of anxiety about it, and I just thought, oh, I really don't think I'd be very good at being dead. Because there's nothing to do, um, which I'm not very good at. And... um, you have to go there on your own, which I'm not very good at. And I was just thinking about how like, I'm not very good, in a way, I'm not very good at solitary retreats. I'm better at kind of people and things and doing things and, and stuff. And um, I did, yesterday I was just thinking, oh, God, I really must go on solitary and start sort of practising um, because I really don't think I would be very good, you know. We've given my experience of solitaries, and I think it might be similar. You know, you've not got any of your familiar stuff around you. You know, you're not at home. There's just all these things about being dead that I don't think I'd be very good at. <laughs> so in a way, we are sort of practising for being dead, in a way, or for dying. So abandoning actions done solely for this life. It's not that those things won't have an effect in this life. They will have an effect. If we develop metta, we develop fearlessness and so on, they will have an effect in this life. But it's abandoning the actions that are done solely for this life and don't have any effect on our most essential core. So another little quote by Lama Guntang Konstrone. <laughs> not a made-up name, I don't think. Who says... 
The Lord of death who dwells in the south does not consider the state of your plan. You should speak with him. When he comes to call on you, he will not ask if you are young or old, high or low, rich or poor, ready or not. All are forced to go alone, leaving behind their unfinished works. The thread of life is suddenly broken, like a rope snapping under a heavy load. There is not time for plan making. To die without spiritual knowledge is to die in pathetic helplessness. So just to finish, just coming back to this kind of koan of the dewdrop world. So this world of dew, this sort of illusory world, which is at the same time very real to us and very potentially painful to us. And yet it's, a, it's an illusion. And within this, within this world, within this koan, I suppose, of life and death, we have another koan, which is how do we make the most of life without hanging on to it? And how do we neither waste time nor resist the passing of time? Yeah. And just to finish, I'm just going to read a little quote from Dennis Potter, who wrote, it, wrote this when he was um, dying of cancer. And I suppose it's to do with the kind of perspective that you, you get when you're close to death, either your own death or somebody else's death. I think you get a different kind of perspective. And in a way, I think we're looking to get that different kind of perspective. That's why we're reflecting on death and impermanence, to bring about this kind of perspective. The blossom is out in full now. It's plum tree. It looks like apple blossom, but it's white. It's the whitest, throffiest, blossomest blossom that ever could be. And I can see it. Things are both more trivial than they ever were and more important than they ever were. And the difference between the trivial and the important doesn't seem to matter. But the nowness of everything is absolutely wondrous. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Please come and help us keep this free at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. And thank you.